Lord, we thank you for the chance once again to come together and get into your word. Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us through this text. Um, (laughs) I don't think there's a person here that hasn't heard this story before, uh, Lord, and we know that familiarity can can breed contempt sometimes. I pray that wouldn't be the case tonight. Uh, I pray that you would give us uh, something fresh, something new, um, uh, teach us in in maybe a, a different way. Um, even if it's reminding us of things uh, that we may have heard in the past, Lord, um, we know that you have a purpose uh, for uh, every every time that, that we get into your word and, and purpose to seek you through the word. So I pray this wouldn't just be a, a time that, that we check out, but a time that we engage and, and purpose to hear from you personally um, through through this study, Lord. So uh, we know that will only happen by your spirit. So we ask for your spirit to fill us, to help us uh, focus on what you have for us. In your name, amen. All right. Um, so uh, last week, we were in First Samuel chapter 16, uh, and we discussed trusting God's choices because God was going to choose a different type of king. He gave the people the king that they desired, a king after their own heart in the person of Saul. Uh, though he warned them, we saw how devastating Saul's rule and reign was, so God rejected him. So he said, I'm going to choose a man after my own heart, and we're introduced to that man in First Samuel chapter 16, and it was wasn't the man that anyone would expect to be the leader. In fact, even Samuel being perhaps the most spiritual man in the land, he doesn't see David as a leader. He sees Eliab as the leader. God corrects him and says, don't look at his outward appearance. I'm choosing a different type of leader, a leader after my own heart. And he did some different things and challenged Samuel in some different areas to lead him to the king of God's choosing, and not of Samuel's. And we learned and discussed how God's choices aren't always our choices, and often He challenges us to choose things that are different than maybe we expect, or maybe different than our understanding would lead us to believe or choose. Now, we see this man who's a young boy, somewhere between 10 and 15, we begin to see right off the bat uh, why God chose them. If you remember way back when we were introduced to Saul and Samuel had chosen Saul, there was nothing about his character that was described in the text. It was all external things. He was tall. He was handsome. He was good looking. We saw the things that he did, but we didn't see the internal person, the, the character of Saul. There wasn't anything to talk about and there was no mention of God when the Bible described Saul. Now we're introduced to David. Yeah, he's ruddy. He's, uh, he's got uh, enlightened eyes. He's got bright eyes. He's uh, a good-looking guy, but there's so much more emphasis on his character. And David is described as this warlike, uh, just man of, of humility, this, this great, great young man. This description of David at such a young age is not a description that you typically find in grown men let alone let alone little boys and and David just right off the bat we begin to see why God chose him this was truly a king that was going to make a difference this was a king that had a lot of promise and then we get to first Samuel chapter 17 
where we begin to see this this promise unfold. And David is going to perform an act that really solidifies why God chose him as king. He is a totally different type of king in this act that he's going to perform. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we know it. Uh, he's going to slay a giant. He's going to conquer a giant. So the title of this teaching is Conquering Giants. Conquering Giants. Now, what we'll see throughout David's life, but uh, specifically in this chapter, is that David is a type of Christ, meaning there's a many parallels between David's life and the Lord's life. And we'll talk about a bunch of those uh, in this text, as well as we continue through uh, David's life. But what we're going to see in this text is really... That David is just that. He's a picture of Christ. And David was going to come on the scene in a time that Israel was in turmoil. They had lost their faith in their king. They had lost their faith in their God. So David literally is going to play the savior in this text. In the midst of an impossible task and conquering Goliath, David is going to come through the man chosen by God, the man appointed by God to accomplish something that no one else was willing to accomplish. David is the conqueror of the giant in this text. And as I said, it's a picture of Jesus being the conqueror. Now, in this text, we see Goliath is the enemy, but we we ultimately know that Jesus conquered the enemy. He conquered Satan, hell, and death on the cross. But through his victory, we're allowed to, we're invited into sharing in that victory. In fact, that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, in Romans 8, 37, it says, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. Not we're more than conquerors just because we're, no, we're more than conquerors in him because he loved us. That's where the victory is rooted. It's rooted in what Christ did. And we're going to see a parallel here. Here, Israel is victorious because of what David did. Not because of what they did, but because of what David did. So the only way we're able to conquer giants is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're only conquerors in him. We're not conquerors on our own. We're not David. We're the scared people here, afraid of Goliath. Now we can learn a lot from David's faith and we should purpose to mimic David's faith. But the picture that the Lord is painting through the text is that we're Israel. We're, uh, we're set against this impossible task in conquering this giant and God sends a savior. Okay, that's the primary purpose and point of the text. But we'll also discuss David's faith. And be able to learn how to overcome certain giants. And it's only by the grace of God and the power of God that this will ever happen. Let's dive into the text. Unpack this. We'll get all the way to verse 37 tonight. And then we'll finish the rest of the chapter next week. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle... And there, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes, Damon. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So both armies come to prepare for battle on opposite sides of these mountains, opposite sides of these hills. Uh, and we see the valley of Elah in the middle of them. This valley, it still stands today. This isn't some fictional story. This is an actual event. We're talking about actual people in actual places that exist in the present. It continues on in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. We see the description of Goliath. He's extremely intimidating. That's the point of what the text is trying to reveal to us. This guy is intimidating. Point number one, giants are intimidating. Giants are intimidating. It's as simple as that. That is the point. When you look at this guy... First of all, he's referred to as a champion. That doesn't only mean that he was a legit soldier. He was the best soldier in the Philistine army. He was the champion, meaning he represented the army if it came to a situation where the armies decided to just send one from each side. And this is often how they would engage in battles in uh, ancient, even Greek and uh, Roman history. They would do it like this so that they would save some of their armies, that they would just have one of their people potentially die. So we see Goliath, he's six cubits high, uh, tall. Now, uh, he could be anywhere from eight and a half feet to 11 feet, um, depending on the uh, size of a specific cubit, okay, which is typically from your elbow um, uh, to your wrist or to your fingertip, I believe. Uh, regardless, it's different for different people. The point is this guy is extremely tall. Again, this isn't some tall tale. We've seen people, even in recent history, that have been taller than eight feet. There's a actually a guy, his name was Robert Wadlow, uh, and he was, I believe, in the 1950s. He measured eight foot 11. So this isn't like a, a tall tale. This guy was too tall to be real. Uh, no, this is a legitimate dude and he is extremely tall. Not only was he tall, but he had the most sophisticated weaponry of the day. It goes on to describe this weaponry. I'll read it again. It says he had a bronze helmet on his head. He had a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels. Now this is somewhere between 120 and 200 pounds. Imagine wearing a vest that weighed as much as me, more than me. Like that would be crazy. I would not be able to carry around another me and be able to fight proficiently. But for Goliath, this was like nothing. He probably weighed like over 500 pounds. We don't know exactly how much he weighed, but to be able to carry just a coat of mail that heavy is absolutely ridiculous. Not only that, his staff is described as being, it says, verse 7, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, 
And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield bearer went before him. Now this is likely somewhere between 15 and 25, 25 pounds. His spear was 15 to 25 pounds. How far do you think you could throw a 25 pound object? Not far. Like I work out all the time. I don't think I could throw a 25 pound object very far. Goliath, this is lightweight. This is the size of his spear that he actually throws. This guy is not only enormous, he's incredibly strong. So the author of 1 Samuel gives us the details of Goliath because he wants us to know what Israel's up against and what David's up against. He wants us to understand the dire need that Israel is in for a savior. The whole point, as I mentioned, is this giant is extremely intimidating. What giants are intimidating you? Now, you probably don't have an 11-foot bully that's picking on you at your work or at your house, hopefully not, or in your job. But when I say giant, I mean any big major obstacle that's just intimidating to you. It could be a strained relationship. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be problems in your marriage. It could be financial difficulties. It could be problems at work. It could be any giant situation that you look at and go, wow, this is way too big for me to handle. I look at this thing and it intimidates me. There is no possible way that I'm going to be able to overcome this giant but sometimes these obstacles can seem larger than they actually are and really one of the primary lessons of this entire chapter is rooted back in first samuel chapter 16 verse 7 look at it this is a lesson that god's trying to continue to teach us and the people of israel and verse 7 It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, sometimes the giants appear to be more intimidating than they really are. And what we see as a giant, God sees as a pipsqueak. What we see as a giant, God sees like, really? That? You're looking at the outward, but you don't understand what I can do in the inward. We're focused on the physical, and the Lord is focused on the spiritual. He says, don't look at his appearance. That wasn't just for Samuel with Eliab. That was for us and any giant we come across. Don't be so focused on the physical that you minimize the spiritual because the spiritual is so much more powerful than the physical. And it's easy for us to get distracted by how things appear. He says, don't look at the appearance. The Lord is bigger than that. Goes on to say, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 8. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, 
I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So when Saul hears these words, him and the rest of Israel, well, they're afraid, and rightly so. Uh, well, first of all, Saul should be afraid because he's the tallest one in the army. So it just makes sense that it would be Saul to fight this guy. Everybody's probably looking at Saul like, you're the biggest, you're the one that has to fight him. And the other people we know are much smaller than Saul, so they don't want to fight him either. So it says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath, the enemy, he was already defeating him based on fear alone. He was using the tactic of fear. He didn't even have to fight him in this moment. He was already defeating them through fear. Now we can understand why the people would be afraid looking at this man. I would be afraid looking at this man and he wanted to fight me personally. But does fear help anything? It doesn't. Point number two, don't be afraid of giants. Don't be afraid of giants. Their fear of Goliath didn't do them any good. It actually hurt them more than it helped them. Giants in our life, giant obstacles, giant situations, giant things that, that, that are hard for us to deal with, that we look at, that we're intimidated by, they often produce fear in us. But does a fear of giants actually help anything? The obvious answer is no. But why are we afraid? Because we feel like we can't do anything about the giant. There's nothing we can do to overcome it. There's nothing we can do to control it. It can do whatever it wants to us. Whether we are helpful or helpless, it doesn't really matter. The giants in our life, we're afraid of them because there's nothing we can do about them. So I want you to think in your mind about giant scenarios that you're afraid of. Think about your greatest fears, these possibilities that could happen. Losing a child, your husband or wife leaving you, a natural disaster maybe, Being attacked by a wild animal, that's a big one for me. But these crazy things that you think about, these giant obstacles that you uh, meditate on and you think about day and night, they defeat us. The fear alone defeats us. Now, I was watching this show with Elizabeth, like this old um, English whatever it was like in the right after the Revolutionary War. And uh, what happened was this couple, uh, they lose their daughter and she's like two years old. And I start crying. I'm like, wait a minute. I've never cried about anything like this before. Why? Because now I have a son. Now that there's new life, there's new fears. And I'm going, no, now I have another fear. It's not just the mountain lions and the sharks that I'm afraid of. Now I'm afraid of this. And it just hit me. Is this helping you? Is this helping you being afraid of this thing? No, certainly not. It doesn't help us at all. And often, sometimes, our fear of giants is greater than the giants themselves. Our fear of what's going to happen is greater than what's actually going to happen. Their fear of Goliath is more powerful than Goliath in and of himself. He's one man. If all Israel came against that one man, they'd easily wipe him out. But it's what they're thinking about. What if it's me? 
What if I have to fight them by, by myself? The chances of that happening are one in tens of thousands because there's so many members of this army. So their fear of the giant is greater than, their, than the giant himself. The truth of the matter is, most of our fears will never happen. They'll never happen. The giants that we're afraid of will never come into contact with them. We'll never have to fight them. In fact, I looked up this study in the Huntington Post. I'll read some of the numbers for you. They did a study on these people that were afraid of things. They took it years later. They saw what happened in their life. Uh, can't get into all the details, but it said this with this study, 85% of what people worry about will never happen. Okay. And then 15% of what did happen, 79% of the people that experienced that 15%, they said that they handled the difficulty better than they thought they would, or they're glad the thing happened because it taught them a lifelong lesson. Don't worry about the numbers. Ultimately, When you put the numbers together, 97% of what we fear is basically our minds punishing us with exaggerations and misperceptions. 97% of the stuff that we fear so much, we have nothing to fear. Only 3% of the stuff that we actually fear is worth fearing. Now, we don't know what's going to happen and what isn't. But I know this also with this study. You know what happens? When people live with worry and fear, physical things happen to people. Listen to this. Fear, it leads to stress bumps on your brain that reduce brain mass. They lower IQ. It leads to being more prone to heart disease, cancer, premature aging, marital problems, family dysfunction, clinical depression, and you're also more likely to experience dementia and Alzheimer's in an old age. No wonder God says, do not fear. He's trying to save our lives, literally. When we think about the worry and the fear of these giants, what if it's me? It's killing us. Like fear is literally not just defeating us in battle. It's literally killing us. Holding on to these fears, they do us no good. In fact, they do us so much harm. The truth of the matter is, We're essentially invincible until God calls us home. There's nothing to fear because God's got an appointed time. He knows when we're now this. You can't take this and say, well, I'm going to make foolish decisions and I'm going to go skydiving every weekend and bungee jumping and all these different things. But the point is, in God's sovereignty, he knows the exact moment, the exact day that we're going to die. And we're invincible until that day. That shouldn't lead us to foolishness, but it should lead us to confidence. We ain't going home until he calls us home. So the things that we fear, most of those things will never happen. And even many of those things that do happen, the Lord works it out for good. This isn't a Christian study. This is just practical. This is just a social uh, sociology study, if you will. Moving on. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinab, 
and the third Shema. David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So we go from the description of Goliath to the description of David. (laughs) They're like polar opposites. The youngest, he's a runt. The champions that the scripture is paying with these two characters, they're, they're very different types of champions. Now, it says this, that David, he was the eighth son. He was the youngest. And eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. You even think about it with us, right? There's seven days in a week. The eighth day is what? The first day of the next week. It's the number of new beginnings if you want to study a little bit uh, more into this. And it's interesting that David would be the eighth son because he would literally bring a new beginning to Israel's kingdom. He would bring a new beginning. This is the beginning of a new beginning for Israel. Now, it says that David, in verse 15, occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David, not only was he a worship leader, we know he was a shepherd. He was a good shepherd, but he wasn't the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. David is a good shepherd, and he's a good shepherd to mimic. He's a good shepherd that sets a good example, and he also is a worship leader. He's literally bouncing back and forth from leading worship for Saul so that Saul would be able to overcome his spiritual obstacles and the distressing spirit that would come upon him. And then he's going and shepherding his father's flock. What we see about David, and we'll see a lot of character qualities in David in this text, but but he's a selfless servant. None of this stuff is about him. He's doing things to serve other people. He's not focused on himself. He's focused on other people. And we'll continue to see this theme through uh, in David throughout this text and uh, throughout most of his life, not all of it. But it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 16. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. So the Philistine, he's drawing near, he's yelling profanity to these people. I defy the armies of Israel. He keeps saying different things, trying to egg them on, trying to instill fear, which he's accomplishing, but also trying to instigate one person to stand up to fight him because he knows in his mind he's going to defeat whoever Israel sends after him. But we also see he's doing this for 40 days. 40 days in the Bible is the number of testing. Okay, 40 days in the Bible is the number of testing. If you remember, uh, Israel was uh, in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years, right? And they were tested, they were tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was also in the wilderness for how long? 40 days, right? Being hit, He was fasted and then after he was tested by Satan. There's some other scriptures as well. Moses in his 40 day fast. Uh, 40 is the number of testing. Point number three, giants are meant to test us. Giants are meant to test us. Now, this test for Israel isn't to discourage them, but actually it's to produce more faith in them. They're up against a task that none of them believe they can accomplish. They're afraid. They're intimidated. 
God is bringing this giant to test them to actually produce more faith in them. We know the end of the story. God is ultimately going to conquer this giant. And this is exactly what he does with us when it comes to giants in our life. He brings giants not to harm us, not to intimidate us, not to instill fear in us or defeat us. No, he brings those things into our life to test us to produce more faith in us. It says just that. In other words, in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect in the Greek is the word mature. He tests our faith to mature us in the faith, to produce more faith in us, to literally produce perfect precious faith in us there's so many other scriptures that talk about this i want to point to one more in first peter chapter one in first peter chapter one verse six it says in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials That the genuineness of your faith, this is why you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't know what our faith is made of until it's tested. If we have an untested faith, then we don't know the substance of that faith. A faith can't be precious, or at least we can't see that it's precious until it's tested. Once it's tested, we see what it actually is. Is it pure like gold or are there impurities? Most of the time there are impurities and he tests us to bring those impurities to the top, to the surface. So we can scrape them off. So we can be left with a more precious, a more pure form of faith. He's not doing this to defeat the Israelites. He brought this giant to build their faith. Not just in David, but ultimately in God. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 17. Then Jesse said to his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they all and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David is sent on a task. He's literally serving others. He goes from doing worship with Saul to taking care of his father's sheep. And now his father is sending him out to bring bread to his brothers. This is another typology. Just as David brought bread to his brothers, Jesus is the bread of life. He feeds his brethren the bread of life. Now, David, we see this selfless servanthood once again, constantly focused on others. When you look at David, this is, I believe, the original Cinderella story. This is the original Cinderella. He's the servant. He's the one that's looked down upon. He's the runt. He's the one that nobody cares about. We'll see later. His brothers, literally, they look down upon him to the point that at least one of them resents him to a degree. But this servant would be raised up to become a king. Now, if you would with me, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left his sheep with a keeper, and took the things 
and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel said the and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. So look at David. His father gives him a task. He rises up early. He left the sheep. We see this character quality of David. He's responsible. He doesn't just say, hey, sheep, you're on your own. He leaves them with a keeper. So we see the responsibility of David. We also see the diligence, the eagerness to obey his father. The minute that he got the chance, he wanted to obey his father. And what he learned by being eager to obey his earthly father, God used that to teach him how to eagerly obey his heavenly father. So. He comes to the battle. The armies are standing on separate hills across the valley of Elah. And they're yelling different things at each other. I don't know what kind of strategy this was. They're just yelling at each other. It doesn't appear to be very successful or effective, but uh, that's what it talks about. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 22. And David left his supplies... In the hand of the supply keeper ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. What words? Well, he kept saying the same thing. Probably some other profanities in there, but I will defy the armies of Israel. This is what he kept saying. And this is these are the very words that just set David off. This is it. This is all he had to hear. That this Philistine is saying that he's going to defy the armies of Israel, or in other words, the armies of the living God. This was all it took. I love David. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. The men are focused on what they see. David is focused on what he's hearing. They see a giant. David hears a slanderer. He doesn't care how big he is. What he said was wrong. David is literally standing up for morality. And we see these other men, the Israelites, are being led by fear. It goes on to say, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So Saul doesn't want to fight him. Saul's the logical choice. So he offers a reward for someone who will. I don't want to fight him. Someone else fight him. And he offers him uh, several different things. He offers them great riches. He offers them a bride. And he also offers them uh, freedom. Freedom from taxes. This is another typology. When Christ defeated the enemy, what did he win? He refers to us as his treasure. He refers to us as his bride. And by his victory, we have freedom. Uh, so there's some parallels there. And what was offered to Saul, uh, and, and or sorry, what was offered from Saul to David, and what Jesus accomplished 
on our behalf. Now, David, he isn't doing this for the riches. He's asking, but this isn't his motivation behind it. He makes clear what his motivation is. He's offended that this man slandered his people, which ultimately was slandering his God. He defied the armies, not just of Israel, but the armies of the living God. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Harsh. See, Eliab... In the last chapter, he was a mirror of Saul, right? Um, Samuel locked eyes. He saw him. He said, man, this is the guy. His stature, his look. He's like the next King Saul. And he was wrong. In this chapter, he's actually a mirror of Goliath. He looks down on his brother. He's going to speak some harsh things to David, just as Goliath will later in the next teaching speak harsh things of David. Okay, so Eliab kind of mirrors these two different leaders, Saul and Goliath. Eliab's angry. Why is he angry? Well, for several reasons. He thought David was uh, was unworthy to even speak. He wasn't part of the army technically. He was the runt. He was the youngest brother. He looked down upon David, period. But he also accuses him. He claims to know what's in his heart. And, and he says, you're, you're prideful and, and you're insolent. And, and you've come down to see the battle. Eliab thinks that David just came because he wants to see the battle. He's claiming to know what's in David's heart, but he clearly doesn't know what's in David's heart. It wasn't pride that was motivating David. It was his love for the Lord that was motivating David. So Eliab's all wrong. And basically what Eliab is thinking is that David's talking to try to get someone to fight him. He thinks that David's just saying this stuff so that he can get someone to fight Goliath so he can watch the battle. This obviously wasn't what David was trying to do. These weren't David's intentions. He was completely willing to back up his words, as we'll see later in the text. Which is also interesting. We see at least Eliab, likely his other brothers, looked down upon David. And they misinterpreted David's intentions. If you look back at John chapter 7, we see the Lord's brothers do the same thing. They misinterpret the Lord's intentions. They say, uh, who seeks to be known and doesn't get his name out there, doesn't, doesn't perform to get a gathering. Now, they were basically trying to uh, persuade Jesus in that text to come up to the Feast of Tabernacles and do miracles and teach with power uh, because they thought that was his motivation. He was trying to start a movement, but that clearly wasn't the Lord's motivation. He makes it very clear. I've come to glorify my Father. I didn't come to glorify glorify even my own self so we see the brothers as they look down on david so too did the lord's brothers look down on him and misinterpreted his intentions verse 29 and david said what have i done now is there not a cause david was likely hurt by eliab's response He had to be, right? Like this was extremely offensive and Eliab's wrong. We know that's not what's in David's heart based on what plays out later in the story. But in the midst of his heart hurt, he responds in humility. He responds in humility. He could have gotten an argument with his older brother about this whole thing. But no, he gives a soft answer. 
And what does it say in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1? Proverbs 15, 1, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away. It would have been easy for David to be like, No, that's not why I'm doing this. You're misjudging me. You're wrong, Eliab. I'm willing to fight. He doesn't do that. This is also a picture of Christ. Christ doesn't always fight for himself. He doesn't have to fight with words. He doesn't need to defend himself. Talk about it soon on Sunday. But David, he has wisdom. He has humility. He responds with this soft answer. He's trying to put the argument away. And he is hurt. So often, we like to prove ourselves right. And it's easy for us to get in arguments, especially with siblings. Also with spouses. And we want to make, no, that were, that wasn't my intentions. I, I didn't, that why, it wasn't why I did this certain thing. Or that's not what I meant by this. And it's so easy for us to continue to add fuel to the fire and continue the conversation and the argument. And we know this scripture, but how often do we do it? A soft answer turns away wrath. It takes two people to have an argument. If one person just makes a soft answer and says, okay, I'm done, or asks a question, okay, I'm done, then it's no longer an argument. It's just one person being verbally abusive. It's not an argument any longer. It takes two people to be in an argument and you see it. And this happens in real life, right? If I get an argument with Elizabeth, she knows, she knows. I have this thing. I want to I wanna prove myself right, right? If she just gives me a soft answer, then I have nothing else to say. What am I going to do, argue with myself? Oh, man, and then what happens? I feel bad and I have to go apologize later. It's like, oh, man, okay, she's wise, I'm not. But this is what David's doing. We see this character of humility, this character of wisdom. It's so powerful, that soft answer. We don't give it enough credit, but that's exactly what David does. He says, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And it says in verse 30, Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus, David He isn't just talking about it. He's ready to act on it. He's making sure that it's clear. He's not just saying these words because he's offended. He's saying these words because he wants to do something about it. He is willing to fight this battle. Now, this must have been good news and bad news for Saul, right? Good news, now he has someone to fight for him so he doesn't have to fight. But bad news, the one that's offering to fight is a little shepherd boy. It's like... Great, but is this the best chance we got to send the smallest guy in the army, the little boy that's not even technically a part of the army, to go fight Goliath? So Saul, he responds, verse 33, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Saul, not learning the lesson that we learned in 1 Samuel 16, 7, He's looking at the outward appearance and he's judging based on the outward appearance. This guy's a champion. He, he, he's a man of war. You're a little shepherd. You're a little worship leader. What can you actually bring to the table? You don't have the gifts to, to accomplish the task. Now we know God, he's looking on the inside. He's looking on the internal. He's looking on the character. 
And it's so easy to get discouraged based on what we lack, whether it's abilities or spiritual gifts or our age or our emotions or personality, whatever the case may be. And we can hear someone say, you can't do it because of this. You can't do it because of that. But if God is calling us to do it, we can do it. We can do whatever the Lord calls us to do because what he calls us to do, he'll equip us to do. Paul, writing to his young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Don't be discouraged by what you lack. He's focusing on youth for Timothy because that was probably a weakness for him. That was probably something that he struggled with. The people were older. The people in his congregation perhaps were older than him. And he struggled. I'm too young to do this maybe. But it's not just youth. It can be anything. We can get so focused on who we aren't that we don't find out who we are. And there's certain strengths that God has given each and every one of us. And there's certain things that He's called each and every one of us to. If he calls us to it, he'll make sure we can do it. It says in 1 Samuel, picking it back up, in verse 17, sorry, 1 Samuel 17, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. See, God had been preparing David for this moment since he was even younger than he is now. He was preparing him as a shepherd. He already had overcome two giants. He overcame a lion and he overcame a bear. Point number four, our giants today prepare us for our giants tomorrow. Our giants today prepare us for our giants tomorrow. David was able to do this Because he was looking back in faith. And looking back in faith will give us the ability to look forward in faith. He saw the faithfulness of God in the past. And he was confident he would see God's faithfulness in the future. And that is the truth for all of us. For us to uh, overcome the obstacles before us, we have to remember God's faithfulness behind us. Sometimes we see the obstacle and we forget God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness, it can't be that big. God won't get me out of this jam, but that's simply not true. If he's gotten you out of one, he'll get you out of another. And that's how faith builds on faith from glory to glory. It's not supposed to stay the same. It's supposed to continue to grow. And that's not from our doing. That's from the Lord's doing. We go through things. We see the Lord show up. Now that produces what? 
Paul says it produces hope in us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, he says tribulations, ultimately it produces hope. Why? Uh, because we see through the tribulation, God showed up, he did something, so now I know when I walk through the next tribulation, I can have hope. That word hope, a confident expectation. I can be confident uh, 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 in the face of this giant because... The Lord got me through the last giant. He was able to give me the ability to overcome the last thing. Now, this can be as small as tasks set before us, and we ought never minimize the tasks set before us because God will use the tasks set before us to prepare us for the next task that will be set before us. But for me personally, maybe it's teaching. I remember... I was thinking about this as I was studying this. I remember the first time I asked to teach, right? I told you about this. I had to write the thing down. I read it. Uh, and that was terrifying to me. Uh, and then the next time I got asked to teach, I had three hours to prepare a message. Uh, Pastor Chet couldn't be there and I had to teach. I was terrified once again. And then I started getting not like completely comfortable, but somewhat comfortable um, in, in being able to share a message. And then I got asked to sh- teach a whole book and i'm going what i can't teach through a whole book and the lord showed up every single time they weren't great let me tell you hopefully they've gotten better but the point is the lord he uses these challenges in our past to prepare us for future challenges that we're going to have it could be something like a task it could be something else like a trial he'll use trials that we've gone through in the past to prepare us for trials in the future so that we look back see god's faithfulness during that one he grew us he shaped us he molded us now i'm more able to walk through this next trial actually what was hard for me in the past is no longer that hard for me for david he was confident in slaying lions and bears and and that gave him the confidence to be able to slay goliath now god's faithfulness is one thing our faithfulness to overcome the obstacle is another thing we got to be faithful with the thing that God brings before us. He'll show up, but we have a responsibility too. David didn't just sit back with his feet on his staff, watch the sheep, and God's going to strike him down with a lightning bolt or something. He just didn't, didn't watch and say, oh yeah, God's going to take him out with a tornado or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. He knew God had his back, but he had a responsibility as well. The Lord used David. It was both the Lord's faithfulness and David's faithfulness that a accomplish this task we also see and we'll continue to see the courage of david he's so courageous he's willing not only to fight the lion and the bear but also the giant and i really want us to put this into perspective (laughs) would you put your life on the line for a bunch of sheep literal sheep i'm not talking about people for if you saw a lion or a bear come after sheep we're not talking about people okay we're talking about sheep would you put yourself between the lion and the bear, or sorry, lion and the sheep, or the bear and the sheep? I don't know what I would do. Honestly, I don't know what I would do. Now, I've sh- shared with you stories before. I've seen coyotes come after sheep that we were watching, and we chased them up. Coyotes are one thing. <laughs> Lions and bears are a completely different thing. Now, if you asked me if it were dogs, and they were my dogs, then I probably would. But sheep, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Hopefully, the Lord would give me the confidence in that time period to put my life between the sheep and the lion or whatever was threatening them. 
This is a huge thing for David to be willing to lay down his life for his earthly father's sheep. God knew that he would be willing to lay down his life for his heavenly father's sheep. This is one of the most crucial uh, character qualities that we see in David that makes him fit for being a leader. It goes on. I read it. I'll reread it in verse 37. This is so important. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Fifth point, God is the one who conquers the giants. God is the one who conquers the giants. He's the conqueror of the giants. David isn't conquering this giant without God. And he knows this. He says it. He's not trusting in his own ability. Even when he talks about the bear and the lion, he says, God delivered me from them. He'll deliver me from this giant. He didn't say, man, dude, I'm good with this. Like, you guys got to see me throw a sling. Like, I am the man when it comes to slinging stones. No, he's not saying that. He says, the Lord will deliver me. He says, he knows the only reason he's able to overcome these obstacles is because the Lord is giving him victory. Now, how is he able to say this with such confidence? He says, the Lord will. He doesn't say, God might help me out this time. I'll take a step. He knows for a fact. I don't know how he knows. We know David is a prophet. I don't know if God actually spoke this to him and told him, hey, I got you on this one. I'm going to I'm going to give you the power to defeat Goliath. Or perhaps David in that moment, it clicked. Wait a minute. God's prepared my been preparing me my whole life for this moment. Maybe he wasn't even thinking about the lion and the bear before and it clicked for him. God used the, the obstacle of the lion and the bear as prophetic confirmation that he was going to give him the ability to overcome the giant. We don't know how David knows, but we know David knows. Regardless how he knew, ultimately, he knew it was the Lord that was going to give him the victory. And ultimately, this message is pointing to is a shadow of a victory that would come. Paul and all the writers of the New Testament talk about this victory, but I want to point to one specific scripture in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Again, this was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. David's a type of Christ. He gives us a picture of Christ. He's not Christ, but he gives us a picture of what Christ was going to do. Just as David, as we'll see in the next teaching, he overcame Goliath, Jesus Christ would overcome the enemy. He's the conqueror of the giants. Now think about it. If Jesus has conquered the greatest giants ever known, we're talking about Satan, We're talking about hell. We're talking about death. Don't you think he can conquer the little giants? If he can conquer the greatest giants, he certainly can conquer the smallest of giants. And the giants that we face in our life, seriously, in the grand scheme of things, they're small. They're little. 
They're little compared to the big scheme, compared to what Christ did on the cross. The fact that he was able to defeat the greatest giant should give us the confidence that he's able to conquer our little giants. But are we confident in that? Are we confident like David and we can say God will deliver me from this and from that because he's delivered me from this and from that can we say that in confidence are we confident in the Lord's ability to conquer giants in our life or or do we doubt do we question do we realize that he's bigger he's better he's more powerful than any giants this world will ever show us that, that this world will ever bring before us And not only that, He loves us. He cares for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? And I sometimes think, we look at this world with so many obstacles, so many things coming against us, and we see it in a negative light, and that's natural, that's understandable. But the Lord was bringing this giant into Israel's life for His glory, for their benefit, to build their faith, to grow their faith, to prove to them that He is a conqueror of giants. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You... um, that you're strong enough, you're big enough, and you love us enough to conquer giants in our life. Lord, and we thank you for your power. I pray that if, um, if any of us is struggling or doubting whether you can do something or whether you can't, Lord, if, if we have any thoughts of, of, of thinking that the obstacle before us is, is too big for you, God, I pray that you would replace that doubt with faith that you would replace our fear with confidence. God, that we would know that not only can you, but you want to. And uh, Lord, we just, we just thank you uh, for that. You, you are the overcomer, and because you overcame, we get to share in that victory, not because of anything we do, but because of what you did and the abilities that you have, not the abilities that we have. Lord, so we thank you that we can be more than conquerors in you who loved us. In your name. Amen.